Welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 39, Questions on Doctrine, Part 3. Last time we talked about the first four meetings between the Adventists and the Evangelicals in the spring and summer of 1955. Now, they made a lot of headway in these meetings with the Evangelical side convinced that however weird Adventists were, they were still Christian brothers and sisters. Now, what remained was to iron out some wrinkles and for both sides to figure out the best way to explain it to their respective bases. Now, I've tried to be conscious of the (laughs) sheer number of names that I mentioned in this story because it can get overwhelming, especially when you're only tuning in once a month. So just as a friendly reminder, the Adventist team included Leroy Froome, Edgar Unruh, W.E. Reed, and Roy Allen Anderson. The evangelical team included Walter Martin and George Cannon, and occasionally Donald Gray Barnhouse. I know I said that I imagined that this story arc would be a trilogy, just three episodes, but it turns out there's going to be four episodes, maybe five. Hope you won't mind. I originally thought that the last episode we did would, would be enough, right? You, you, you get to meet the, the, the delegates on both sides and you, you, what they're talking about and the progress they're making in their meetings. It, because really what happens in like the next 10 meetings is not, not as profound. It's not as groundbreaking. It, it's not quite as dramatic, I thought. But, you know, let's be honest. What we really want here is we want to get to the big fight. We want to get to the controversy. We want to know what happened. Like, Why is this such a big deal? Let's get on with it. So I had thought, you know, one episode covering just the first few meetings would be enough. And then we can get on to the juicy, dramatic stuff that we all want to get to. But I thought it would be good to spend one more episode talking about the last so many meetings between the Adventists and the Evangelicals. And just flesh it out a little bit more. Now, it, it, it pains me to say it. But you don't need this episode. It's really more of what we talked about last time. But as I recognized in myself, maybe you recognize it in you too, this desire to jump ahead, get to the juicy stuff, the drama, all of that. And and I realized with that inside me, I'm like, you know what? Let's finish this story first. Let's not jump over a year's worth of of, of of meetings and things just to get to the juicy stuff that we're all wanting to see. Let's finish the job. Let's finish the story. And so that's what we're going to do in this episode. Doesn't mean it's not a, a, a good episode. I hope that it is. I hope that you enjoy it and it, and it um, is insightful and, and perhaps even inspiring for you. But uh, yeah, let's get on with it. Okay, we last left our friends after the groundbreaking meeting at the Donald Gray Barnhouse house in August 1955, which was the turning point in our story, because up until this point, the question was whether Avenus could even be seen as fellow Christians. After this point, with everyone agreeing that Avenus were in fact Christians, well, the issue became how Avenus and Evangelicals, number one, could could uh, understand each other, really how evangelicals could understand Adventists, 
on the on the less essential points and also how can we sell this conclusion to our constituents now this agreement was on both sides considered to be uh, an agreement over the core issues of christianity it's hard to find Barnhouse or Martin ever writing about uh, about Avenus being Christian without also registering their disagreements, you know? They're very... It, it, this is not a small thing for them that they're trying to paper under the rug. Uh, but they're, they're... You know, it's always coming up. We, we still don't agree with Avenus. We're not Avenus, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there, there's all these small issues that still need clarifying. Things that the evangelicals don't understand why Avenus believe them. And the Avenus delegation had their hands full in answering these many smaller points that the evangelicals were raising. And we've, we've talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but I thought I'd just give you a few examples of like, what are these points? For instance, Martin and Cannon were both bothered by Ellen White's statement that eating meat was, what she said, doubly objectionable in her book, Ministry of Healing. Do Avenus look down on Christians who eat meat? Question. Uh, the evangelicals also had concerns with desire of ages, pages 49, 111, 117, and 223. Don't know exactly what they objected to on each page, but these are these are in their notes of things that they were bothered by. Could Froome clarify what Ellen White was saying there? Oh, 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 and what about Carlisle B. Haynes' book, The Christian Sabbath, and some of his comments in that book? The evangelical camp, though, above all was especially outraged by things that M.L. Andreasen had written in his commentary on Hebrews about the nature of Christ. And, you know, we'll get to that soon enough. So while Avenus were working through these, these smaller objections, I call them smaller, it, it doesn't mean they're unimportant, but it just means that they're not what either side considers core aspects of the gospel. There's still a lot of work to chase down these quotations and try to explain them to the evangelicals, right? But they just, they weren't going to break off negotiations over these things. So while Avenus were working through these smaller objections, they scheduled a meeting with denominational leaders and wanted to brief them on the progress that they've made thus far to secure their support in publishing the Avenus answers to the evangelical questions, okay? So from this early stage, I mean, just after months, okay, you think about it, they started meeting in March of 1955, they had the Barnhouse House meeting in August of 1955, and in September and October 1955, this Adventist delegation, this Adventist team led by Froome and Reed and Unruh and Anderson, who just arrived, they wanted to talk to the General Conference president, some of the church leaders, and say, hey, we want to publish our answers to Martin's questions. We think that they're going to be of great benefit to other Christians who wonder what we believe. Because, of course, the statement of fundamental beliefs is not a deep explanation of beliefs. Not, it, it certainly isn't going to satisfy more than the cursory glance, you know. It can tell you that Adventists believe in the Sabbath. It can give a few texts for that, but it doesn't explain how these texts fit together. It doesn't get into the objections that some Christians would have to this belief, right? Like, but that's what, that's what Froome and company were working through with Martin. Here's what we believe and here are all the reasons why we believe it. And so they thought maybe other people would benefit from this as well. And plus, plus, and, and maybe, maybe this was the, the main reason here. Plus, if we publish our answers to Martin's questions, 
it's it's a it's proof that we really believe it because we've published it the church has published it it's out there in the world with a review and herald imprint or whatever and, and and you know and then it's proof that we didn't just tell martin what we wanted martin to hear like we're we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're actually publishing it as uh, an explanation of what the church believes so they're they're going to brief the the church leaders in september and october these church leaders looked it over the document was called a quote a very fine piece of work in explaining what Adventists believe and quote general conference president ruben figure added that the document, quote, carefully avoided any suggestion that any new point of faith is being established, end quote. That is, Vroom and company have not changed any Adventist beliefs and that they are representing their church well with their answers. Spoiler alert, not everyone is going to think that that's true. Now, the church only asked that Vroom and company add a statement explaining the diversity of Adventist belief, why have Adventists seemingly changed their minds on some issues like the deity of Christ from the earliest days? Now, this statement ended up as the answer to question three and questions on doctrine when it was eventually published. It's, it's remarkable, I think, because it admits publicly to something that just wasn't talked about openly. For instance, the statement says this about the Adventist pioneers. Quote, while all were premillennialists, some were Trinitarian, others were Arian, the majority were Arminians, a few were Calvinists, some insisted on immersion, a few were content with sprinkling. There was diversity on these points. End quote. Boy, no one was spilling state secrets here, okay? But were these things you discussed openly? Is this something that people would be comfortable with? Now, of course, in questions and doctrine, they didn't put names on who wrote what, but any Adventist with an awareness of their own history could understand what this chapter was getting at. Uriah Smith was wrong. James White was wrong, at least when it comes to a, uh, the nature of Christ or the deity of Christ. Is this how Adventists were used to thinking and speaking about their beloved pioneers? Again, it's not that this was a sudden revelation. But it certainly would end up galling some Adventists that their leaders in, in, in negotiation, in discussion with outsiders, would be so quick to say, oh yeah, our pioneers were wrong about a lot of stuff. It's the idea that Adventist leaders would freely confess their pioneers' mistakes to outsiders. It felt like a betrayal to some people. Right? Some things just stay in the family. You can argue about it at the dinner table all day long, but the moment you go post something about it on Facebook, it becomes a different issue, right? Besides, they might say, don't lose sight of the many wonderful things that our pioneers have done. They're, they're more than just their view of Christ, you know, his nature. They're more than just their view of the Trinity. They're more than these things that they might have been wrong about, the mode of baptism or whatever. Okay, you're going to have people who are going to think along those lines, who are going to react to those ways. And of course, the, the kind of the historians among us, the histor 
historically minded people are like, yes, the more truth we get out, the better. We can face it. Okay, that's going to be another view of a way of looking at it. Uh, a much more modern view. We have nothing to hide. Like, let's just get it out. Now, whoever wrote this section of QOD, cough, room, cough, it bears Froom's fingerprints, okay? While he appreciated the pioneers, he did, his Adventist worldview was entirely progressive. And I've mentioned this before. It is worth mentioning again. The way he saw Adventism, and please, when I say progressive, I'm not, I don't mean like in a modern political sense. I just mean progressive in the sense where he's, his Adventism is looking forward. Adventism is moving from confusion in the past, right? Confusion over baptism, confusion over Christ, confusion over the Trinity, from confusion to unity. We're unified today, he would say. From ignorance to knowledge, Adventism was simply growing up and maturing. And Froome's progressive view was that the pioneers were good, but they were incomplete. We later generations of Adventists, we're meant to build on what the pioneers started. We're not meant, and this is the, the, the contrasting traditional view, is that, is that the pioneers had it right, and subsequent generations' job is to maintain, to observe, to preserve what they had faithfully. And of course, generally speaking, in the traditionalist view, Subsequent generations never maintain what the pioneering generation of anything had. There are uh, traditionalists of, of Apple computers where, you know, it's like, well, Apple is different now than it was during Steve Jobs' era. They need to recover that mojo and get back to what made Apple such a rebellious, fun company. You know, now they're just like every other company. You see this, of course, it goes without saying, in religious terms, right? Christianity was best in the first century. We all need to get back in some way, shape, or form to the first century. This is the traditionalist view. It's not a distinctly religious thing. It could be a political thing, right? We need to get back to the founding fathers. If you live in America, you're a conservative in America. You know, we got to get back to this thing that the pioneering generation, whether it's the first century A.D., whether it's uh, 18th century America, whether it's 19th century America, whatever the founding generation is in your movement or in your organization or in your cause, the traditionalist view is we got to get back. We got to maintain what they had because that's what made us wonderful and great and all those sort of things. By contrast, Froome's progressive view was that they were imperfect people. They were good people, but they were incomplete, imperfect people. And it's the job of subsequent generations to continue to improve, to continue to progress. All right? Now, traditionalist, progressive, that doesn't mean anything in terms of theology. Because if Froome were alive today, we would consider him a theological conservative. And, you know, we would consider M.L. Andreasen a theological conservative as well. Maybe they would disagree on certain things, but they'd be at that end of the, of the spectrum together. The progressive versus traditionalist way of looking at Adventism has nothing to do with theology. Uh, it, it will impact one's theology. It will shape one's theology, to be sure. But it, it's not like, well, he's progressive, so he must believe in, I don't know, evolution or something. No, of course he didn't. Not at this point in Adventist history, at least. 
So I just want to make sure that's very, very clear because we use progressive today. We use conservative. We use traditionalists all in, in very, very loaded ways. So I just want to make sure to, to kind of diffuse that bomb uh, before we get into it. But this is, the, this is the contrast between the two different views. Now, this progressive view appealed to Martin and Barnhouse because it matched their own experience as fundamentalists progressing into neo-evangelicals. Okay, this is, this is not a set of terms that would make sense to them at that moment, but it did enable them to make sense of this legion of little statements and quotes from Avenus authors that contradicted what Froome was, was saying, right? Because Froome would say, Avenus actually believed this. Martin would say, well, I, I found in this article and I found in this book things that contradict what you're telling me, Froome. And Froome would touch this, just tell them, yeah, that was 20 years ago. That was 30 years ago. That was 10 years ago. We no longer believe that now. We are, we're, we're, we're progressing. And so Martin and Barnhouse, they can understand that, like, Okay, yeah, because we we evangelicals are also progressing from our grumpy fundamentalist days. We're trying to at least. And and so they can understand that, right? They can understand that uh, these Avenists who write things that contradict what Froome is telling them are that lunatic fringe, that famously horrible <laughs> phrase to describe Avenists who, uh, who apparently haven't had their spiritual software updated yet. Right, so we can safely ignore them because they're not progressing. They're in the past. They're fossils. They're not with this movement that's going on right now. So this statement with Froome's progressive vision of the church was added to the answers his team had written for Martin and, and sent to the conference in the Union Presidents for Review. Now, the response from the conference and Union Presidents was positive. These answers accurately represent our faith. And I'm going to keep mentioning this because stage after stage after stage, the people who saw these answers almost invariably supported them. Said, yeah, that describes Adventism. They had no problem with it. It wasn't controversial to them. And part of that is perhaps because administrators are not always theologians. But at least there was nothing obvious in these answers that triggered any Avenist leader and said, oh, this is going to cause problems for us, okay? Because administrators are always looking out for things that are going to cause problems for them. And they apparently didn't see any in these answers from Froome and his team. So the way was open to publish these answers and to let the wider Christian world see that Avenists were Christians too. The, the plans at this point about exactly how it was going to be published and all that were not quite set, but at least the path was open for that. Okay. We move on to November 1955, when Froome, Reed, Anderson, and Unruh, um, they were under no illusions that these meetings with Martin would be easy to explain to their fellow Avenists. In August 1955, Froome attended the International Congress on Bible Prophecy held at a Baptist church in New York City. Avenists had been attending these Bible prophecy conferences since, you know, at least since the Niagara Bible Conferences in the late 1800s. Why wouldn't Avenists go when the interpretation of Bible prophecy was on the menu, huh? Now, this International Congress meeting, there was one in the early 1950s and then the second one here in 1955. They introduced, especially the second one, a new strain into these meetings, which was a focus on the state of Israel, which had just emerged in 1948. Now, some big names were present, including Frank Gabeline, Wilbur Smith, John Walvoord, I don't expect that you will recognize some or even all of these names, but they represent some of the top evangelical scholars of their day. 
Gabeline Woodwork for Christianity Today, and on the Translation Committee for the NIV, the New International Version. Walvoord was president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he popularized the idea of the rapture. So thanks for that, buddy. Really? <sighs> Wilbur Smith was a founding member of Fuller Theological Seminary. Now, the goal in attending the conference was not just to argue with evangelicals about prophecy. Maybe that was something that Adventists enjoyed in the past, but, uh, but there were more urgent goals at this point. The goals were political and ecumenical. The Roy Froome chatted up the other Adventists he found who happened to attend from the general conference or elsewhere to assess how they felt about these evangelical Adventist meetings, which people had heard that Froome was a part of. Froome reported to his uh, fellow uh, conspirators, <laughs> to, to Unruh and, and uh, Reed and Anderson, that seminary president Ernest Dick and Professor William Murdoch were both on board with the, they were both in favor of these evangelical Adventist meetings, but he wasn't sure about Harry Lowe over in the Sabbath school department. I should add that Lowe would later write a glowing review of questions on doctrine. So he's like, you know, who's on my side in this? Who's favorable to these meetings? Who's not? You know, who do we need to work on? Where are we going to get trouble? Where's that going to come from? You know, if somebody's really opposing what we're doing. Now, Adventists weren't alone in, in using conferences like this for political reasons. Walter Martin and his team and the Adventist team met on the sidelines. He was there, too. And they discussed the, the strategy behind his upcoming book, The Truth About Seventh-day Adventists. Martin was using the conference as a way of building support for his book because he knows it's going to be hugely controversial, right? So Martin at the, at the Congress also met with Lewis Talbot, that anti-Avenist fire thrower at the Bible Institute of Los Angeles or Biola that we talked about last time, uh, who had feuded with Martin. Well, Martin met Talbot and for about the first 15 minutes, it just says they were launching hand grenades at each other. I mean, it was just straight fire. And they just exasperated. Martin just stopped to remind Talbot, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm a Baptist pastor. I do research on all sorts of groups. Good, fair, honest, careful research. Martin insisted that he wasn't out to defend Adventism, but to show people like Talbot that you just can't take ex-Adventist word for things. Froome called Martin's interview with Talbot a, a, a softening up of Talbot. As if Martin were like an artillery bl barrage blasting away at enemy positions before the main attack came. On the last day of the Congress, the main attack came. Froome and Maxwell ran into Talbot in the lobby, and Talbot began throwing out those ex avidus quotations. Well, you believe this, and you believe that. And Froome and Maxwell insisted, no, we don't. <laughs> and, and then Talbot retorted, that Llewellyn Wilcox in Science of the Times said that Jesus had our sinful, lustful passions. Okay, Llewellyn was nephew of former Review editor F.M. Wilcox. Now, Froome told Talbot that Wilcox no longer worked for Science of the Times because of statements like that. It's like, what, what more do you want us to do, buddy? Talbot says, well, you, one of your authors says this. You know, it's like, yeah, and we, he's no longer one of our authors because of statements like that. Like, what more can we possibly do? Well, at long last, Talbot admitted, after a, after a, a, a shelling by Martin, <laughs> and then a, 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 a two-on-one attack <laughs> by Froome and Arthur Maxwell, he finally admitted that, you know what, I would be glad if some of these things that I heard about Adventism weren't true. And then Froome mentioned 
you know what? I'm going to be in California. I'm going to be stopping by to see Wilbur Smith in a few months. Dot, dot, dot. Talbot took the bait and said, won't you come see me too? Froome called it a miracle. Now, Froome also noted that the mood of this 1955 Prophecy Congress had changed from the one he attended three years ago, when a couple of speakers back then in, in 1952 just ripped in the Seventh-day Adventists. All right, now this time, this time he was treated courteously. You know, there was a much more concern for the Adventists in their midst. They were much more aware of the Adventists in their midst. And, uh, and Froome concluded, quote, this experience has confirmed our convictions that when we follow the clear counsels of the spirit of prophecy and the urgings of the blueprint, we become recognized as true Christians and are automatically taken out of the category of the cults. These men differ from us, and we differ from them on our distinctive doctrines, but there is tolerance and charity over those doctrines as differences between Christians. This is a long, long step forward for which we thank our Heavenly Father. And there has been no compromise of principle, no lowering of standards, no hiding of our distinctive denominational differences and convictions and beliefs. They respect us for holding to these, and they would not respect us if we compromised upon them. End quote. What I love about this statement is it challenges us to really rethink what ecumenical dialogues mean to us. Ecumenical just means uh, talking between different religious confessions. In Adventism then and, and today as well, in, in many places, ecumenical is kind of a dirty word. It conjures up ideas of compromise, as, as uh, Froome is pointing to here, right? There's been no compromise of principle. It, it conjures up ideas of compromise, of, of maybe somebody who's weak, on their on the doctrinal distinctives, they just want to get get along with their Christian brothers and sisters, and and if that means suppressing what makes us Adventist, then so be it. Because we just you know we just want to get along. Maybe we don't need some of these doc like. But that's the that's the kind of popular understanding of of these ecumenical conversations that are had. Uh, many Adventists don't see any any value in them. Like, what do we have to talk about? Why why do we need to talk about it? We have the truth. They don't. You know, like, what's the point of all of this? What's interesting is that, you know, it's not that Froome is, un, is unaware of these concerns. He is. And what he's basically, Froome is making an argument here in this in this letter. He's basically saying that when we follow the clear counsels of the spirit of prophecy, means Ellen White there, and the urgings of the blueprint, I'm not sure what he means there, uh, we become recognized as true Christians, and that this is a good thing, that the fruit of ecumenical dialogue is that we become recognized as true Christians, and it breaks down prejudices other Christians have against us, and he doesn't say this here, but the implication is, of course, that's good for us as Adventists, to break down these walls that exist between us and other churches, it's not because Adventists are deathly afraid of being um, called names by other Christians. It doesn't really harm uh, Adventists themselves very much. It will harm the evangelistic witness of the church, of course, because it, it makes it hard for people to, to want to listen to what Adventists have to say. They're considered a cult. And so, and so these ecumenical dialogues are going to bear evangelistic fruit in that once we're removed from these cult lists, 
this these categories, uh, then then maybe more people will want to listen to our speakers, our, our evangelists when they come to town. And you know, and he's careful to say, like, look, we didn't compromise in any of our beliefs. The evangelicals certainly are going to defend themselves. Martin's going to defend himself, saying, I didn't compromise in any of our beliefs either. And that both sides respect each other because of that. Are there some ecumenical dialogues out there that are, are, are trying to kind of remove, uh, you know, like, let's see what doctrine we might be able to compromise on in order to achieve unity? Perhaps so. I, I, I don't know that that would be the majority of ecumenical dialogues, but I'm sure it, it's probably happened. But at least in this case, the goal of the conversation from the Avenist side, I think, was to break down these walls that will help the evangelistic witness of the church. It will also help kind of the, the professional side of things, uh, you know, with, with uh, professors. Of course, today, perhaps as a result of Froome's work, there are Avenist professors in, in non-Avenist universities. Uh, and, and so they're gonna, there's Avenist academics working, collaborating, partnering with non-Avenist academics on, in, in areas in which they can work together without compromising theology. It's not all about theology, right? And, and so Froome is going to say, like, this is, this is the point of all of this. We can do all of this without compromising our principles without lowering our standards, without hiding our distinctive denominational differences. In fact, if we tried to hide them, we couldn't have gotten this far. Now, when Froome got back from the Prophetic Congress, he decided to write to Llewellyn Wilcox and say, Hey, it recently came to my attention that you wrote some things in Science of the Times way back when, and, you know, what did you mean by them? Do you still believe these things? And Llewellyn Wilcox uh, said, he confessed that, you know, look, I, I just wrote what I had been taught. I just wrote what I had been taught. I had been taught that Jesus had a sinful nature yet was without sin. And and he said, look, if I'm, you know, if these things are being used against us now by by uh, people who don't like us, then I, I, I renounce all of these statements as, because they were written in ignorance. So that was a, a good boon for, for Froome. He could use that whenever this quote came up again and said that, you know, and say that Llewellyn Wilcox doesn't even believe this anymore. But the coup de grace was the fact that Walter Martin convinced Gabeline and the professor at Fuller Theological Seminary that if Adventists wanted to apply to the evangelical group, perhaps he means the National Association of Evangelicals, that Adventists should be let in as evangelicals. Now, Wilbur Smith and E. Schuyler English had had their own connections with Avenus through the year we haven't really talked about, and we're also coming around to the same idea that Avenus were evangelical. And it's an absolutely stunning turn of events, given that all of these evangelical leaders began the year believing and teaching that Avenus were some species of heretics, if not a cult. Now some of them were willing to welcome Avenus in as fellow evangelicals. So this dialogue was already paying dividends, and it was paying dividends in other ways as well. Zondervan, uh, that great Christian publishing outfit, in the source of so much anti-Avenist material over the years, began to open up as well. Bernie Zondervan, one of the founders, wrote to Roy Allen Anderson, quote, You may be sure that we too are interested in having him, meaning Walter Martin, 
Treat your wonderful group as brethren in the Lord. We know that you are interested in the Word of God and that you hold dear the precious basic truths of the Word, just as all evangelical and conservative groups do. End quote. All of this progress was precarious, however. Froome, almost obsessed with squashing any hint of deviation from what he had been telling Martin, okay, <laughs> he, uh, it became a little bit of a hobby for Froome. So Arthur Maxwell, who, who hit it off with Martin, who met him for the first time, it seems, at the Congress in Bible Prophecy, Arthur Maxwell was fired up by his friend Zeal when he suggested that the church create a quote-unquote board of censors to approve every published word. So we want to let that sit in for a moment, right? Because these, these guys are, Froome especially, were tired of, of finding all of these quotes and books and, and articles and about that, that contradict what we've been telling the evangelicals. It just It's like a steady stream of evidence writing things, including a recent general conference president we talked about as well with Branson. Writing things that were prone to being misunderstood, that were leaning towards, leaning the wrong way. And so Maxwell said, what if we set up a board of censors that has to approve every published word? Like, is this where this is going? Well, Froome said that that's going to go too far. But the fact that Froome shared this suggestion with others hints at how detached, and I mean that in a loving way, how detached this group of ecumenical Adventists were becoming. Maxwell Froome wrote, quote, thinks that there are only one or two such statements in 30 years that are off color. He doesn't know that there are a good many of them, end quote. And so even, even with Maxwell, who's like, well, maybe we should have a board of censors. Even Maxwell Froome thinks, doesn't realize how many of these statements there are. There's a good many of them. Froome was obsessed with purifying the published writings of the church from any statement that might betray what he had been telling Martin that Avenus actually believed. And speaking of Martin and Barnhouse, Froome told Unruh, quote, I just feel exceedingly concerned that we do not play double or that we do not allow these statements to continue unrepudiated, or Martin will have just cause to think that we are trifling with him. We must be true to these men. Let's not allow this thing to break down, to backfire, or to play false, or our latter end will be worse than our former. End quote. Do you sense the pressure that Froome felt? Martin had gone out on the limb for Adventists, risking his own reputation and career for the sake of these talks. Froome, now to a lesser degree, was also exposed on his side of the table. If the, if the wrong Adventist decided to raise hell about this, about talking with these evangelicals, and oh, Froome's changing our beliefs, da-da-da-da. Yeah, then he could be in trouble, right? But what if Martin decides that Froome has been lying and covering up and, and not telling the truth about what Avenus actually believed, that, that Froome's just trying to put a good face on things. And Martin at some point just says, you know what, I've been lied to, da-da-da-da-da, out of a sense of betrayal and anger. He just, he just picks up his pen and just destroys the Avenus church from top to bottom in his book. I mean, this is, this is a possibility, especially as these statements, which are contradicting what Froome is saying, continue to be published and continue to be found. And if at some point Martin just gets tired of Froome having to explain 
well, this is what this author meant. And well, we had to fire this author. And you know, you're right. We didn't catch this book before I got onto our shelves at the, at the book and Bible house. We'll take it off the shelves. Like, I mean, how much of that do you have to go through before you realize, you know what? These people are not serious. And Martin just gives up on the whole thing, turns around, tries to destroy the Adventist church. Better to be a cult than a corpse, you might say. Froome was like a man in a messy house before company comes. He's running around the house just shoving stuff under the couch and in the closet. But he also can't be too forceful about it because the other people who live in this house are like, hey, that's my stuff. Because some of the things that Froome thinks are dirt or messy are all are important heirlooms to other Adventists, to other people who live in the house. And because some Adventists are still publishing things that undermine Froome's efforts, he's got to be careful. He's got to be careful. Froome, Reed, Anderson, and Unruh can't keep a lid on everything the church publishes. They can't act like the church's theological gatekeepers, not without starting a firestorm. So when Carlisle B. Haynes, just wait till we get our Haynes on you, that guy. So when he publishes some questionable statements on the nature of Jesus in the December issue of These Times, all W.E. Reed could do is lament. Quote, it really makes me sick, but what can we do about it? End quote. Froome understood. He said, quote, these men, he's meaning Martin and Barnhouse, cannot be blamed for questioning the statements that we have made as to the real position of the Advent faith when such statements appear in current literature. How could they judge otherwise? Let us pray that it does not come to the surface. End quote. This is not going to end well, friends. <laughs> if you can't tell. When you're doing something and worried about what the evangelicals might notice and you're worried about what your fellow Adventists might notice, well, you just can't walk that tightrope forever. Leroy Froome didn't set out to do anything wrong, and that, that, that really bears being understood here, nor did Reed or Anderson or Unruh. All they wanted to do was explain what Adventists believe in language that evangelicals could understand and appreciate. And little by little, though, Froome and company went from explaining what Adventists believe to determining what Adventists believe. And that's a slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, because... Froome so desperately wanted to believe in an Adventist church that was unified on topics like the nature of Christ and the Trinity that he failed to appreciate that the church wasn't unified on these topics. It wasn't. Nor were the people who weren't unified with Froome on these topics part of some lunatic fringe. They weren't lunatics. I mean, hardly. Instead, they were writing for the church's major magazines. They were, in some cases, well-known figures. The story that Froome and company were telling to Martin and Barnhouse and Cannon, no matter how deserving it might have been of being true, just wasn't true. It's 
it's not that there wasn't some progress from from Froome's perspective. It's not that there wasn't some progress that had been made. Of course there had. But the church wasn't unified on these issues. And you can explain away all the the articles and statements and books to the contrary of what Froome was saying. You can you can take those books off the shelves, but it's some you can't do that forever without people smelling a conspiracy. No matter how well intentioned you are, no matter you know, I mean Froome's goals from beginning to end were laudable. But at some point, you're on this slope. You go from saying, this is what we believe to, well, shaping what that belief is by removing books or removing you know, statements from magazines or, or firing people. Right? At some point, you're determining. You're not just describing, you're determining. And by the way, this is, this is kind of the main critique of the church having fundamental beliefs from the beginning. right? Because when Uriah Smith starts this in the 1870s, he's like, I'm not trying to tell anybody what Adventists should believe. I'm only describing what they already believe. That's what Froome says. But it doesn't take long to get from that to having 27 and then 28 fundamental beliefs. And even though there's still a little disclaimer in there that says these are descriptive, these are not prescriptive, nevertheless, we all know how they're going to be used, don't we? Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, you don't believe fundamental belief number three, number 10, number 20, whatever. You're not a good Adventist, right? They all start off with good intentions. But we all know where the slope goes, unfortunately. It goes from being descriptive to prescriptive, no matter your intentions. Well, the betrayal that Froome feared came probably from the least likely source. <laughs> it came from Walter Martin himself. In December 1955, Martin's Rise of the Cults hit the bookshelves, which we talked about in the first episode of this series on QOD. Now, you can imagine how shocked the Avenus were to find themselves in it. Froome was stunned, absolutely stunned, to find Avenus in a book called Rise of the Cults. Roy Anderson wondered if Martin was ever only a critic in disguise, like waiting for this moment to pounce. He, he, he befriended these Avenus. It was all part of the master plan from the beginning. I'm just going to get on their good side. They're going to open up to me, and then bam, I'm going to drop this book on them. Froome was like, I don't know how we can continue our dialogues. I mean, he, he's like, we've got to reevaluate everything that we've accomplished so far. It's all in jeopardy now. Now, Martin eventually responded by assuring Avenus that this book had been written before they started meeting, that he had, in fact, because they were meeting and it was going so well, he removed the chapter on Adventists. Now, Martin said he just, he just didn't have time to remove every reference to Adventists in the book. But, as Julius Nam notes, quote, Martin's excuse reveals a, reveals a gross negligence on his, on his part. It would seem that the nine months between March and December would have given him enough time to make relevant corrections to his manuscript, end quote. Was the book so urgent that he couldn't take the time to have it say what he wanted it to say? I mean, how could any author not be horrified at having just butchered a chapter out of their book and then not bothered to clean up all the vestigial references to that chapter in the rest of the book? 
I mean, it's just sloppy, right? Nevertheless, Avenus accepted Martin's apologies. They met again in early February 1956. Martin preached at the Tacoma Park Church and spoke to the, the, the faculty and students at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. A few months later, in May 1956, both sides again returned to Doylestown to meet with Barnhouse at the Barnhouse House for their last conference together. Both sides had come to their conclusions after 14 months of combing through Adventist history. The evangelicals maintained the entire time that, that Adventists were truly Christian, and both sides were discussing how best to publish these conclusions. Now, Adventists were going to publish a book called Questions and Answers, which of course became Questions on Doctrine. The Evangelicals publishing strategy centered on a new book by Martin called The Truth About Seventh-day Adventists, due to appear before the end of the year. Have our fingers crossed about what that book's actually going to say. <laughs> but to whet the appetite for the book, the Evangelicals planned on publishing five articles in Eternity and other magazines simultaneously. Two of these articles would be written by Barnhouse, three would be written by Martin, and they would summarize their findings. So it's kind of, uh, you know, here's what we discovered in our dialogues with Avenus in these articles. And, you know, basically go read this forthcoming book if you want to know even more. Which, of course, you know, who wouldn't? I mean, what a great advertising strategy. You're like, Avenus are Christians. By the way, you can buy this book to find out why we think this. And people are just going to lose their minds. Um, but as it so happened, Martin's book on Avenus didn't actually appear at the end of 1956 as planned. It appeared in 1960. <laughs> um, I guess you just, you can rush Rise of the Cults, but... The, the truth about Seventh-day Adventism takes years longer than is expected. Uh, and so that meant that the five articles weren't just leading up to the publication of the book. They were, they were, they were doing all the heavy lifting, right? It's all people would have to go on as to why Martin and Barnhouse had changed their minds about Adventists. I mean, all you've got now are these articles. You don't have a, a, the book in a timely fashion to kind of help explain why they came to this conclusion. So, Barnhouse's September 1956 article was, was entitled, Are Seventh-day Adventists Christian? A New Look at Seventh-day Adventism. Now is the time, Barnhouse wrote, quote, to make known to the general public the results of the hundreds of hours of labor that have been expended by Mr. Martin and the similar time that has been put forth by many Adventist leaders. I should like to say that we are delighted to do justice to a much maligned group of sincere believers and in our minds and hearts take them out of the group of utter heretics like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Christian scientists to acknowledge them as redeemed brethren and members of the body of Christ. End quote. And for this act of delight and justice, after 14 months of constant meetings and a, a budding friendship, the reward for all of that work on the evangelical side was that Barnhouse's and Martin's Eternity magazine promptly lost half of their subscribers. Ah, <sighs> That's right, my friends. We're on the cusp. We're finally going to talk about the avalanche of criticism, the drama that fell on the heads of these evangelicals and these Adventists next time. The end is nigh, my friends. The seven last plagues are about to fall. And that makes every Avenus heart happy for some weird twisted reason. <laughs> we'll see you next time.
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.